The Australian Financial Review. We're in Redfern. We're here to talk to people who are looking at a two-bedroom apartment. It's just opposite Redfern Park. It's an inner city area. The line is around the corner. I think I can see about 40 people waiting to go in. On the weekend, the Finn podcast went out to talk to people in Sydney who were trying to find a place to rent. My lease doesn't end until the end of April, so we're trying to get ahead of it. Um, uh, We're moving because our landlord wants to increase our rent by $370 per week, which is criminal. Um, So from what to what? From $680 to $1,050, and it's really not worth that at all. We're already over. 23-year-old accountant, Alyssa, can't believe how hard it is to find a place for her and her two housemates. So this is our second property this morning and it's only, what, 10 o'clock. We've got seven that we're seeing in total today. And I had a look at another four on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. Um, none of which are really that great, but (laughs) Mm. (laughs) just kind of getting what we can. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe now compared to past times when you've been looking to rent a place? It's just hectic. And we've already applied for four places. Uh um, And this is our first week because we just know that it's going to be so hard. Uh Um, Yeah, just feels a bit more desperate this time around. In the past 12 months, rents have surged at a record-breaking pace as international borders reopened, overseas students returned and migration resumed, pushing up demand. Meanwhile, higher interest rates and construction costs and falling house prices have hit the supply of new houses and apartments, leaving people like Alyssa at the ground zero of Australia's rental crisis. Welcome to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray. Today, reporter Michael Reed on what has caused this rental squeeze, how it's affecting the economy and what's being done to fix it. It's Thursday, March 23. Mike, we're hearing the phrase rental crisis everywhere at the moment. What is the situation right now? Well, no matter where you are in Australia at the moment, Lisa, it's just incredibly hard to find a rental property. Nationally, just about 1% of rentals are currently vacant, according to figures from SQM Research, and that's just extremely low. In smaller capital cities like Perth and Brisbane, vacancy rates are at record lows. Uh, while the number of vacancies in larger cities like Sydney and Melbourne have fallen back to long-run averages, but the number's dwindling quite quickly. So just to highlight how little stock there is on the rental market at the moment, in December last year, the total number of new rental listings on realestate.com.au, which is one of the major online property sites in Australia, that had fallen to its lowest level since mid-2003. Properties are also being snapped up quicker than ever. The average rental listing is lasting just 18 days on realestate.com.au, while each listing is also experiencing a close to record level number of inquiries from prospective renters. So basically, if you're a new renter at the moment, it's incredibly hard to find a place to live because there are so few available rentals. But also the asking rents that you're being asked to pay are now 13% higher than they were at the same time last year, according to SQM. 
And that's a huge increase given rents weren't increasing particularly fast at all before the pandemic. And that's leading to some pretty cutthroat behaviour. Some of the prospective renters we spoke to on the weekend said listings were disappearing after just a few days and that people were actually having to offer higher payments to secure places. What's your read on how renters and landlords are responding to the current conditions? I'm really not surprised by those sorts of stories, Lisa. Um, Before I moved to Canberra in 2021, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment uh, in Neutral Bay, which is a suburb on Sydney's lower North Shore, where I was paying $390 a week in rent. An identical unit in the same building was just listed the other day for $480. So that's $90 per week higher than I was paying when I lived there. How hard it is to find a place. Would you be happy to have a chat and just talk about uh, Probably not, to be honest. Yeah. I've, to be honest, I've actually been running around so much to all these rentals and I'm actually just tired of driving everywhere and getting stressed out. Yeah. So, uh, Need a break. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay. I am finding that they're gone within a few days. So right. sometimes we don't even have a time to inspect and it's snatched up. Even though I plan, like, next week on Saturday, we've got time, let's go inspect that and it's gone before we actually have a chance to do that. Oh, that's a shame. If you can't make a midweek inspection. It's also just not uncommon now when you're out on the weekend to see huge queues of people lining up for rental inspections. Yeah. Um, I'm Aiden. I'm we're 19. Yeah, I'm Ryan. Um, also 19. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been looking for a few months because we're first-time renters um, studying at the moment. Yeah. Um, so we're just looking to move out for the first time. Extra and difficult. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to find a place within the price range that we can work while study full-time yeah. um, to afford it and... Yeah, and something that's, like, livable as well, because that's a fine line with these faces. (laughs) And as you've mentioned, you're also just hearing more and more stories of people doing what rental bidding, uh, you know, bidding up the advertised price to try and secure a property, uh, despite efforts by state governments to outlaw that kind of behaviour. As far as I'm aware, there was legislation passed recently that said you couldn't like um, rent out an apartment for higher than the listing price. But what we're finding is that we'll go look at an apartment and then presumably within the next few days, somebody offers higher, so they just update the listing. So the listing prices will change like on a, you know, hourly basis, which is, I imagine, just a way to get around that piece of legislation, but I I don't know what it feels like. Because there is just such an imbalance at the moment between the supply of rental properties and demand for them, it's just really become a landlord's market. So the reason they have the balance of power is demand is way outstripping supply. Let's explore how the situation tightened so dramatically in the last few years. And let's start with the pandemic and how that changed where people wanted to live and how they wanted to live. Yeah. So when the pandemic began back in 2020, we saw quite a divergence between regional and capital city rental markets. So the exit of international students and the explosion of these uh, capital city tree changes moving from the city to the country put this incredible pressure on housing markets in regional areas, where in many cases, not a lot of new properties had been built in previous years. Uh, At the same time, because of the exodus from capital cities, we did see a spike in vacancies in inner city suburbs, and particularly for smaller dwellings and apartments that had become less popular. This also coincided with a slowdown in the construction of higher density dwellings after a big run-up in the years before the pandemic, 
uh, just because of all of the health restrictions at the start of COVID just made it incredibly difficult to try and uh, get the workforce together to build a new apartment building. At the same time, during the pandemic, we also saw people who were working from home move to larger properties. So between 2016 and 2021, the average size of a household, which you can think of as the number of occupants per dwelling, fell from 2.59 persons to 2.55 persons, Mm. according to research by PropTrack. And while that doesn't sound like a big change, to account for that shift, you actually need 160,000 more dwellings than you previously had. Mm. And so that's people thinking, I might, you know, want to have a spare room that I can also maybe use as a study when I work from home, or maybe I was previously living with people, but now I just want to live on my own. And fast forward to today, we still haven't seen that kind of trend unwind and we're seeing incredible pressures across rental markets yet. We've also seen borders reopen and we've seen people moving back to capital cities who had maybe previously moved to the country. And that's putting a lot of pressure on markets like Melbourne and Sydney, which almost became a renter's paradise, the sort of onset of the pandemic, uh, but is now coming closer to something of a nightmare for prospective renters. Mm. Um, The RBA uh, expects about 240,000 people to migrate to Australia over the coming year or so, uh, which is equivalent to demand for about another 96,000 properties, which is also going to keep on putting pressure on the already very tight rental market. So, Mike, it feels like an unhappy cycle here as rent is going up, which drives inflation higher, and the central bank is putting up interest rates to cool the economy and control inflation. But then those higher interest rates deter investors from wanting to buy properties, and less properties mean higher rents. So let's step through that now and start with how rent is driving up inflation. Is the Reserve Bank worried about this? The Reserve Bank is really worried about rent inflation because rents are arguably one of the major headwinds in its battle to get inflation back under control. So rents are the second largest of the 89 items in the Consumer Price Index, which is the measure of inflation that the RBA tries to keep between 2 and 3%, but is currently running at a multi-decade high of 7.8%. With rents, we've got annual rent inflation running at 4%, But both economists and the RBA expect this to increase even further over the year ahead. And that's because the CPI is measuring the price of all leases in the economy. And because leases tend to only roll over once a year or so, we don't immediately see a sharp increase uh, in the CPI that we've seen in those newly advertised rents that people are paying today, just because the stock of leases takes a while to refresh. Um, Just last week, the central bank put out fresh research on the rental market and issues around affordability, really showing that this issue is very much front of mind for the governor, Phil Lowe, and his staff. So the Reserve Bank Board is watching this closely and they're putting up rates. What impact is that having on investors in the housing market? Yeah, so the RBA has now increased rates 10 times since last May. And there's probably no clearer demonstration of the effect of higher interest rates than on Australia's housing market. What's unusual about Australia is the fact that our housing stock is almost entirely owned by households, unlike in other countries where there's a larger role for ownership by either institutional investors or government. Mm. Uh, This means that renters are likely to be leasing a property from a mum and dad landlord who might own one or maybe even two investment properties. 
We have seen, since rates started rising, loan commitments for both investors and owner-occupiers decline pretty sharply because it's become such an unattractive environment to build new homes in, not just because of higher interest rates, but also because the cost of just the basic building materials you need to increase supply has also gone up really sharply. Uh, We've also seen falls in the number of approvals to build new homes. And so while it may seem quite counterintuitive for the RBA to raise rates to lower rent inflation, there's a wealth of research showing that higher rates do lower rent inflation by essentially just taking some heat out of the economy. So there was some new research last month by the US Federal Reserve, which found that a one percentage point increase in interest rates would lower rent inflation by about 3.2 percentage points over two and a half years. So while that's a short-term solution, over the long run, really the best way to make sure that people can find affordable rentals and a place to live is actually to build more places for people to live. And unfortunately, it doesn't really seem like there's any solutions in the works here. issue facing many Australians, the rental crisis. Open homes have been described as the hunger games. Tenants are facing exorbitant... Sydney is in the grip of a rental crisis, but in some regional towns, the situation has gone beyond crisis. We knew it was bad, but a shock report has revealed Queensland's housing crisis is now the worst in the country, with homelessness triple the national average. So, Mike, we've talked about how we got to this situation and you said there is no solution in the works that will actually solve the problem. So what is the solution? So I know it sounds a bit simplistic and I said it before, but if there aren't enough places to live, at the end of the day, the best policy response is to build more places to live. Over to the Treasurer. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. It's a real honour to be here with you. There's been a bit of action from the federal government on this front. Uh, Western Sydney is in so many ways the epicentre of our housing challenge in this country. Here in Western Sydney, we've got very low vacancy rates for rental properties. We've got fast-rising rents. Last October, Labor announced it had struck a national housing accord with states and territories. The lack of affordable rental properties is one of the big challenges that we have in our economy. What we've done here is bring people together to try and find solutions, bring people together from all different sides of politics and all different parts of the economy to try and shift the needle when it comes to our housing supply issues. To free up land to build one million homes in five years, backed by the superannuation sector. And that's where the housing accord comes in, to ensure that we can have that target, that aspiration of a million new homes from 2024 over five years. While one million homes does sound like a lot, many economists have observed that over a period of five years, one million homes is basically business as usual for the housing market. Mm. Uh, And there's also very little detail about what the federal government means when it says things like it wants the properties to be well located. Another part of its response is this $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which is this uh, off-budget policy with um, sort of an intention to build 30,000 new social and affordable homes uh, in the fund's first five years. 
it's a great idea. We definitely do need to build more public housing. That would help renters because more public housing means fewer people trying to rent in the private market, freeing up properties for other renters. But even that policy is being criticised for not actually doing enough and not aspiring to build enough dwellings. Uh, One thing the federal government could do but doesn't seem to be doing is offering sort of incentive payments to state governments to boost housing supply and ensuring that new dwellings are actually being built in places that people want to live in. At the moment, our current approach to zoning and council approvals overwhelmingly favours people who already own their own homes, object to proposals to increase density and to build more places to live, which is obviously something that would favour renters. Uh, Mm. Recent research by the Centre for Independent Studies showed that it's known as nimbyism, um, not in my backyard. This tendency towards nimbyism, especially in capital cities, means that very few dwellings are being built in the most affluent parts of Sydney, uh, like the eastern suburbs and the lower North Shore where I used to live. So the CIS's solution, it basically said the New South Wales government should set and enforce more aggressive housing targets for local councils so there are more places for people to live. And while they're only talking about New South Wales, this kind of idea could easily be extended nationally. So you've mentioned a few potential solutions there. Let's talk about social housing first, which would address not just the rental crisis, but also the growing problem of homelessness in Australia. How much more social housing is needed? And do you think super investing in social housing should be part of the solution? Yeah, a supply-driven response to this problem should absolutely include building more social housing, which for um, those who don't know, is a type of housing public subsidised where rents are generally capped at 25% of a person's income. Uh, Australia's stock of social housing really hasn't increased at all over the past couple of decades, even though our population has gone up by more than a third over this time. Uh, Research by the Grattan Institute, which is a think tank, found that a low-income Australian living in social housing paid about 24% of their income in rent, but a low-income person who doesn't have access to social housing and who's having to compete in the private market is paying about 37% of their income Mm. in rent. So aside from building more social housing, a lot of economists also agree that there's a pretty strong and urgent case to increase Commonwealth rent assistance which is a public payment that goes to low-income people who also rent, given rent assistance is a very well-targeted government program and the evidence suggests that it probably wouldn't really drive up rents that much. So on net, it would be a really beneficial intervention at this point in time. Um, You mentioned superannuation funds earlier and whether they should be involved in building more social housing. That's a particularly thorny issue that we've written Mm. a lot about here at The Fin. Unsurprisingly, social housing does not come cheap, and that's basically because governments are providing a discount to vulnerable tenants who would struggle in the private rental market to pay higher rents. The issue with superannuation funds is that they ultimately have a legal requirement to act in their members' best financial interests, which means they should be making the best possible returns to members. If they invest in an affordable or social housing project, On its own, as an investment, that just wouldn't stack up compared to an investment in market rate housing because, by definition, returns in market rate housing are going to be higher. The super sector, for its part, has basically said to the government, we're keen to help, but they've also basically said, we would need you to come to the table and provide us with some kind of subsidy to bridge the gap that we would be getting between market rate rents and these subsidised 
social rents to make sure that the Superfund members aren't going to be worse off from this arrangement. The government is also dealing with a housing affordability problem in Australia. Can you explain how the issues of housing affordability and the rental crisis are linked and also explain the role of government incentives for investors in the housing market? So the situation facing renters and the situation facing prospective first home buyers are deeply linked in the sense that increasing the supply of housing would help both of these groups. If we build more housing, that means there's more places for renters to live, which mean rents will be lower, all else equal. At the same time, if we build more housing, that means there's going to be more options for people to buy property, which lowers property prices, and maybe a prospective first home buyer who had been priced out of the market might just have a shot at buying a home. And what about the impact of tax concessions? Yeah, tax concessions are another particularly thorny topic in the world of housing. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two main tax concessions that are central to this debate, and I'm sure uh, many AFR readers are aware of. The first is the 50% capital gains tax discount, which basically means that an investor that sells a property held longer than a year only pays tax on half of whatever profit they've made on the investment once it's sold. That 50% discount has been the law of the land since the Howard government introduced it in 1999, uh, and the general motivation for having some kind of discount is to avoid taxing asset price gains that are just coming from inflation. But the issue with the 50% discount is that it is clearly overcompensating people for inflation. Mm. Um, So a lot of people agree that there's a fairly clear policy case here for reducing the discount to a lower level or maybe even returning to the system we had before 1999 where we were just adjust an investor's gains for inflation and then tax that residual value. Mm. Um, The other big concession that always comes up when we talk about housing is negative gearing. Negative gearing is a concession that allows a landlord who makes a cash flow loss on a rental property, perhaps because the rent they're receiving doesn't cover all of the other outgoings and the interest they have to pay, um, to then deduct those losses off their other income uh, and then basically get a nice big tax return at the end of the Mm -hmm. year. On its own, holding an asset that makes a cash flow loss every year would like be a pretty bad investment strategy, uh, even if you do get some of it back at tax time. But uh, negative gearing does allow property investors to hold on to their properties for longer in anticipation of maybe making a little capital gain once they sell it in future. There are a lot of proponents of either scrapping or reforming the tax concessions. They say that negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount are turbocharging demand for residential property. They're allowing investors to outbid owner-occupiers and prospective first home buyers. And these concessions do also come at a multi-billion dollar annual cost to taxpayers. So there is a separate argument to be had about whether it's a good use of resources um, in a time of fiscal constraint to be paying generally wealthy property investors more tax concessions. Uh, In my mind, the budgetary argument would seem to be the most compelling argument in favour of some kind of tax reform, Mm. given that most research shows that tightening these tax concessions would have a very small effect on house prices and probably not much of an effect on rents at all. So it's definitely not a solution to the rental crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, some research by the Grattan Institute estimated that reducing the capital gains tax discount from 50% to 25% and scrapping negative gearing would lower house prices by just 2%, uh, while rents wouldn't change much at all. 
And this is why it's so important to look at ways to boost supply, given all this evidence suggests that these types of tax measures aren't going to help us out of the rental crisis. Mm, Okay. Among the renters we've been talking to, there's a real sense of hopelessness and concern that not enough is being done to solve this huge problem. It doesn't sound like changing the tax concessions will be a big part of that solution, but when you look at the long list of things the government has to do and where its priorities lie, where does the rental crisis sit? And if the government doesn't do enough to address the problem, what's at stake for the economy and the country? I think at the end of the day, the rental crisis is one of the biggest issues facing Australia at the moment and all levels of government need to be doing more. Ultimately, if there aren't enough places to live, the best policy response is to build more places to live. And that's not just social housing, but that's also building more market rate housing. In terms of what the federal government can do, uh, the federal government should look at making incentive payments to states, provided they meet more ambitious housing targets than they currently have, and make sure that the new supply actually appears in places that people want to live. Uh, We also need to have a good hard look at state and local government planning processes and zoning laws, which allow homeowners a disproportionate sway in vetoing the construction of new homes and new apartment buildings that would benefit renters. The federal government should also seriously look at increasing rent assistance despite the ongoing pressures with the budget. It would ease the pressure on Australia's most vulnerable renters, and then the federal government should also consider indexing it in line with rents rather than in line with the CPI, so that going forward it remains adequate and we don't have to revisit this discussion again. I think without any action, it's going to be a really tough time for households, whether they're renters or owner-occupiers. We've got the cost of living increasing at its fastest rate in decades. In all likelihood, we've got another one or two interest rate rises on the horizon from the RBA. And there are forecasts of an economic slowdown later this year as higher rates start to bite. I think as a society, we've got an obligation to provide people with access to housing at affordable rates. And if we keep on failing, I just worry that we're risking quite widespread social discontent. And, you know, not to end on a really bad note, Lisa, I just think Australia's housing market is just this one big, huge mess. And unfortunately, we're just really not doing enough to fix it. Thanks for running us through that, Mike. No worries, Lisa. Here's the other big stories we're covering this week. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has sought to calm nerves, insisting the banking crisis is stabilising. She said the government could repeat the drastic actions it took recently to protect bank depositors if smaller lenders were threatened. She also said the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank had been necessary to protect the U.S. banking system. Her comments follow a tumultuous two weeks on global markets, and a deal over the weekend in which investment bank UBS bought its troubled rival, Credit Suisse. And Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida visited Kyiv to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. His trip 
means that all leaders of the Group of Seven Advanced Nations have now made the trek to Ukraine's capital to show support. His visit came as Chinese leader Xi Jinping held talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Their show of solidarity has alarmed the US and its allies amid fear China will help Putin prolong his war, either under the guise of a peace plan or by providing it with military support. Thank you for listening to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray with Michael Reed reporting today. The Fin is produced by Alex Gao and Lap Fan. Fiona Buffini is the executive producer. Our theme is by Alex Gao. If you like the show and want to hear more, follow us wherever you get your podcasts and consider rating and reviewing us as it helps others find us. For more stories about markets, business and power, subscribe to The Financial Review at afr.com slash subscribe. See you next week. The Australian Financial Review.